Good morning. <laughs> Open your Bibles, please, if you'd like, to Mark chapter 11. We're studying through the Gospel of Mark, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. We're in chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. I always feel more comfortable and confident if you're following along in your Bible or on your device. The topic in these verses, Jesus rides a donkey into Jerusalem amidst a throng of people shouting Hosanna, the title of our message, Donkey Throng. What's the matter? It was either that or, hey, hey, where's the donkeys? I got a million of them, but anyway, let's, have, let's try and have a word of prayer. Lord, when we're gathered together, you've made special promises to us that you'll be with us and that you'll minister to us. And that's something that we want to take seriously this morning. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to each of us individually and all of us corporately as your church as we wait with anticipation and excitement. You're coming for us to meet you in the air. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. It's a familiar scene that has been played out in hundreds of television programs and movies. The hero in foot pursuit sees the bad guy about to elude him by hopping into a taxi or a bus or some other type of vehicle. Desperate, he flags down the next car he sees, shouts police business, pulls the driver out of his seat, jumps in and takes off after the bad guy in this commandeered vehicle. It usually doesn't end too well for the vehicle, by the way, which leads us to ask, must you yield your vehicle to any law enforcement officer who requests its use? Laws vary from state to state, but here in California, the answer is basically yes. Now, you can refuse, and uh, if they can find you later on, they can fine you anywhere from $50 to $1,000, which might not be such a bad thing because if they destroy your car... They're under no obligation to uh, do anything to repair it. So just bear that in mind the next time uh, somebody wants your car. Now, upon first reading, it appears that in our text, Jesus commandeers a donkey in order to make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He doesn't demand the donkey, however. He has his disciples announce to the owner, the Lord has need of it, leaving the owner free to comply or to refuse. Do you ever think of the Lord Jesus Christ as needy? He said it, not me. The Lord has need of it. If the Lord needed something from someone on that important day, does he still have need of us today? I'll organize my thoughts around two questions. Number one, does the Lord have need of you? And number two, does the Lord have the lead of you? First of all, does the Lord have need of you? And the answer is yes. Now, God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He is omnipresent, meaning he is everywhere at once. And he has determined to use human beings to accomplish his eternal purposes. It takes nothing away from the nature of God to recognize that he uses us to accomplish his eternal purposes. If anything, it adds to the divine mystery of his sovereignty. In our passage, prophecy and providence and need all intersect within the mystery of God's sovereignty. 
Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem on the Sunday before Passover, on the 10th of the month Nisan, on the Jewish calendar. He's going to ride a colt of a donkey upon which no one has ever sat. And when he does that, the crowds will shout, Hosanna. At that unique moment in history, Jesus would be fulfilling at least three remarkable Old Testament prophecies written hundreds of years prior. The first prophecy is Zechariah 9.9. We read this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Those words were written between 520 and 470 B.C. The next prophecy would be from Psalm 118, where in verses 25 and 26 we read, Save now, I pray, O Lord. I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The words date to about 1,000 B.C. Save now is in Hebrew, Hosanna. That is the shout of the crowd as Jesus entered Jerusalem. In fact, the people were quoting this psalm. In addition to his entrance on a colt of a donkey to shouts of Hosanna, there is a third, even more remarkable fulfillment of prophecy. In the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel, written 600 years before Jesus, the Jews were given the exact day in history that their Messiah would enter the city. Now, we don't have time to go into all the calculations today, but a few facts will suffice. Daniel spoke of a pagan king, would be the Persian king, who would make a decree allowing the Jews to restore and rebuild Jerusalem after their captivity in Babylon ended. Daniel said this, this is Daniel 9.25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and to build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Now the decree is a matter of history, not biblical history, but of secular history. It was given by Art Xerxes Longimaeus on May, excuse me, March 14th of 1445. 445. I'm going to get these dates right if it kills me. March 14, 445 BC. It's a matter of uh, regular secular history. The weeks Daniel speaks of are 69 weeks of seven years each. Using the Jewish 360-day lunar calendar, that amounts to 173,880 days. The Jews were told by Daniel that exactly 173,880 days after Artaxerxes issued his decree on March 14, 445 BC, their Messiah would enter Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey to shouts of Hosanna. And that is exactly what happened and what we are reading about in our text. Now, along the way, God acted providentially to bring it all to pass. Providence in its simplest form means to provide for. Having prophesied what would occur, God acted in history to provide for it. Let me give you just one example out of the thousands we could cite. When King Herod determined to kill the prophesied Messiah by slaughtering the young children, God provided for Jesus to be saved by warning Joseph in a dream to take his young family to Egypt. 
Within the scope of prophecy and providence, God determined to use human beings to accomplish his eternal purposes. He had need of them in a very real way. And we see that uh, priority and uh, in a very big way here in our text. And so let's get into it in verse one. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. This begins the last week of Jesus' ministry. It was Sunday, and he would be crucified that Friday. Looking at all four Gospels, taking them together, 40% of what is recorded in them has to do with the last seven days of Jesus' life. 40% of everything written about Jesus in the Gospels focuses on this last week, Passover week. It's that important. Now, we know it was the 10th of Nisan because it was Passover. According to Exodus chapter 12, it was annually on that date, the 10th of Nisan, on Sunday, that the Passover lambs were chosen. They were chosen four days prior to being sacrificed. In Exodus, we're told, they were chosen four days prior so that they could be examined to make sure there was no uh, blemish or spot in them, that they were acceptable sacrifices. Jesus who John the Baptist identified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, was in fact the final Passover Lamb. He needed to arrive just at that time in order to fulfill the type from Exodus, and he was in fact examined by the religious leaders for the next four days, and no fault or blemish was found in our beautiful Lord. And so he was an acceptable sacrifice for your sin and for my sin so that we can know the forgiveness of sin and peace with God. Now, in the midst of all these fulfillments of prophecy and typology, Jesus sent two of his guys on what I can only call a tenuous mission. So much could have gone wrong with this. It's incredible. Verse two, he said to them, go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. There are those who argue that Jesus had made prior arrangements for this, but that makes no sense given his instructions. This was a word of knowledge given to Jesus by his Father through the indwelling Holy Spirit, telling him what to tell his disciples. He tells them to loose it before they ask permission to do so. In fact, they never ask permission to loose the donkey. I'd go along with finding the donkey. If I'm one of these guys and Jesus said, I got a little mission for you here. I want you to go into the village over there and you're going to find this donkey. All right, great. And then you're going to loose it and bring it to me. How about we ask permission first? You're going to loose it and bring it to me and then I'll tell you what to say if you're challenged. That's a stretch, I think. That's a donkey jacking. If you go out in the morning and somebody's in your car, you say, uh, what are you doing? The Lord has need of your car. Now, I've had cars that I wish I'd left them running at night with the keys in them, but nobody wanted them. But uh, anyway, so this is a little bit weird. Have you ever been prompted by God to do something a little out of the ordinary? a little out of what we would refer to as our comfort zone. An easy one maybe is going up to a complete stranger and talking to them about Jesus. Ever had that prompting where you just knew that 
God wanted you to go talk to somebody you'd never met before. That's similar to what these two disciples were being asked to do, only theirs was, I think, a little bit more dangerous. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. Anticipating the question the two disciples were probably going to ask, what if someone asks us what in the world we're doing? Jesus gives them a word to share. I wonder if they practice this. And, and how would they say it? The Lord has need of it. Or uh, the, the Lord has need of it? You know, it, it's interesting, the inflection. Some of you have gotten in trouble sending texts to people, haven't you? You sound so mean. That was a mean text. Oh, I put a happy face on it. So even if you're going to send a mean text. Hey, here's a, my advice. This is Gene, Pastor Gene's texting advice. Put a happy face on everything you send, even if it's a rebuke. And that gives you an out. Anyway, why would the owner, upon hearing these words, immediately send the donkey to Jesus? Well, we can only speculate, but one possible scenario is that God had spoken to him through a dream or a vision. In the book of Acts, the Roman centurion Cornelius has a vision in which he's told by an angel, send for the apostle Peter. Meanwhile, Peter is having a vision of his own, telling him that Cornelius is going to call for him. And so into the New Testament era, God was still speaking to people in these ways. Or maybe the donkey's owner was a believer and he knew the disciples by sight and simply trusted their word. Either way or some other way, God was at work providentially, but the disciples had work to do in order to meet Jesus' need. And so, verse 4, they went their way and they found the colt tied by the door outside on the street and they loosed it. Commentators point out that it would be unusual for an animal to be tied up outside, especially during the busy Passover season when someone might steal it. First century Israel wasn't like the Old West where you tie up at some outdoor hitching post. Uh, Animals weren't treated that way. It would therefore have greatly encouraged the disciples' faith to quickly find the donkey exactly as Jesus had predicted. We often criticize the disciples for getting in the way of what Jesus was trying to do, but this time they were spot on. They did not reason with themselves that maybe it would be a good idea to ask permission first. Instead, they went right up to the donkey and they loosed it. They were not going to get away clean, however, not without a challenge. Verse 5, some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing loosing the colt? I wonder how many of these guys there were and if they were thinking that they were going to put a stop to this by force if necessary. You know, there's plenty of YouTube videos you can see of people coming to the aid of other people. I was watching one the other day. Somebody sent it to me and and, uh, it was a purse snatching in progress in Arizona. And uh, this guy tried to steal some lady's purse. A bunch of people were chasing him and had him cornered. And then one lady pulled her gun and started shooting at him. Bam, bam, bam. I'm thinking, man, what's in that purse? The nuclear codes or what? I mean, you're going to kill somebody over a purse snatching? Hey, it, it seemed a little extreme if you ask me. Maybe not. Maybe if it was my purse, my man purse, I'd feel differently. <laughs> Certainly if it had my iPhone in it. <laughs> shoot on. But uh, anyway, I'm just saying that for fun, maybe. But uh, anyway, so, you know, this is a, I I want you to understand that we read this and we think, oh, praise the Lord, the Lord, you know, the donkey. This is a real situation. This is two guys outside your house, loosing your coat, walking off with it. 
and a bunch of people standing outside saying, uh, wait just a minute. What's up with that? No permission, no talk at all. And, and, and so it's, it's kind of strange. And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. Wow, a lot could have gone wrong. I humbly suggest to you that God recommended this weird arrangement to make his point that even though prophecy must be fulfilled and even though he provided for it to be fulfilled, there was a human element with human beings free to obey him or disobey him. They were very much needed in this equation. Now, don't get me wrong. There was absolutely no danger that Jesus would miss his one opportunity to fulfill these prophecies. Jesus wasn't back pacing the floor, wondering if he had sent the right two disciples and were they going to uh, accomplish his mission. But at the same time, these disciples, they weren't guys that you could always trust, were they? They were guys who kept children from coming to Jesus when he wanted to use them as illustrations. These were guys who told blind men to shut up when they were yelling for healing. They never really got it. On the whole way to Jerusalem, they were arguing about who was the greatest. And now you send them out on this tenuous mission to get a donkey and bring it back so that you can fulfill Zechariah 9.9 and centuries of prophecies. It's a very interesting situation. Jesus was going to fulfill this one way or the other, but he chose and God chose to do it with human agency. What then does the Lord need from you? If he needed something in the first century, what does he need from you? If you say nothing, he's God, that's not really biblical. It might sound spiritual, but it's not. All it does is it removes you from being used by God at all. God does have a need for you. Now, it's true, we add nothing to God, but he has determined in the universe he created to use us in profound ways. There's a whole list of things the Lord might need from you that come immediately to mind, and they would all fit under the major headings of your time or your talents or your treasures. One way this works out is that you hear of a need, a genuine need to minister to others. It's the Lord saying, I need your time, or I need your talent, or I need your resources. And giving you the opportunity to loose them and give them to him. Does he really need it? Well, yeah, he does. But in a sense, not as much as you need to give it, because he can and will ask others until he finds someone whose heart is aligned with him. It's then up to you to loose it, to let it go for the Lord's use. In the Old Testament, Esther is queen of Persia, just as a wicked man named Haman is about to exterminate all the Jews in the empire. Esther's uncle Mordecai urges her to act on behalf of the Jews, even though it could cost Esther her life. You see, she's the queen, but the king doesn't know she's a Jew. She's hidden that from him. Add to that the fact that the Persian king had this weird custom. They were really into their privacy, I guess, because if you approach them without being invited, you were killed unless they extended their scepter to you. And I'm sure this happened a lot. And so Esther thought, hey, first of all, he doesn't know I'm a Jew. I've been lying to him. And secondly, he hasn't called for me in quite some time. And so I risk losing my life. 
Mordecai says to his niece, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? And we look at that situation, we think, of course, Esther is just the person in just the right place. But Mordecai says something else before that. He says this, if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And so Mordecai, who, by the way, isn't a very spiritual guy in the book of Esther, but he understands God's prophecies and God's providence, and he says, Esther, I think you're the queen right now to save the nation. But if you say no, God is still going to do it. I don't know how. I don't know where that deliverance will come from, but I know that God will provide for it somehow. And so that's what I'm talking about this morning. God needs you, but if you refuse, then he will find somebody else and his plan will move forward. God needed someone. It seemed to be Esther, but he'd provide for his plan one way or the other. God needs someone. It may as well be you. Let loose of whatever it is the Lord needs from you. Now, does the Lord have the lead of you? The two disciples Jesus sent were being led by him. They went as he had commanded, they did what he asked, and they said the words he had given them. That There couldn't be any more perfect leading than that. Go, get, say, and they did all of that. The owner of the donkey and the others on the scene in the town, they were led by the Lord to comply with the loosing and to submit to the Lord's words. If even one of those guys on either side had ignored God's leading, the results may have been very different. I can see at least one guy saying, hey, wait a minute. Nobody's doing any loosing or taking until we get the Roman authority involved in this and make sure that everything is copacetic. But everybody was following the leading of the Lord. And as it was, their faithful submission led to the triumphal entry of the king into Jerusalem just as prophesied centuries earlier. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it and he sat on it. Jesus is somewhat of a donkey whisperer, I guess because this colt had never been ridden before and so they throw all these clothes on it as a makeshift saddle and he gets on it and rides it. And yes, kings often rode donkeys in those days, especially in times of peace. This should have been a sign to the Jews that their king was not coming to wage war against the oppressors from Rome, but to make peace between God and those who were his enemies by virtue of their being sinners in need of salvation. He would make that peace by dying on the cross as our sacrifice and substitute for sin. Colossians 1.20 we read, and by him, that is Jesus, God reconciled all things to himself whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And so Jesus comes in on the donkey uh, in order to symbolize the peace that he is going to accomplish on the cross. And many spread their clothes on the road and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And then those who went before and those who followed cry out saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Mark doesn't mention palm branches. The other gospels do. I guess Palm Sunday sounds better than leafy branch Sunday or spread your clothes out Sunday. I mean, that just doesn't work, especially in the American church, right? So, hey, next Sunday, the beginning of Passion Week, spread your clothes out Sunday. 
little kids bringing their little clothes. Oh, oh. who's going to wash that? Hosanna means save now. In that sense, it's not really a word expressing praise, like hallelujah. And we, I'm not saying it's wrong to use it that way, but when we say Hosanna, it's not like saying praise the Lord. It means save now. They were literally asking Jesus to save them right then by establishing the promised kingdom of God on earth. It was their expectation that Jesus would save the nation of Israel from Roman oppression. They were asking for the kingdom of David to be restored. The Jews fully expected the Messiah to rule from David's throne in Jerusalem. We call it the brick and mortar kingdom, the literal kingdom of God on the earth. And there will be a kingdom of God on the earth like that, but not now. Today we are in what can be described as a spiritual kingdom as God rules in the hearts of those submitted to him. Those of us who've submitted to God who are in this spiritual kingdom, we live in the midst of the kingdom of the devil who's called the God of this world and the kingdoms of men that still exist in this world. Our mission is to go against the devil and into the kingdoms of men with the gospel, making disciples everywhere as we enthusiastically await the return of Jesus to resurrect and rapture his church. And then, after that happens, there will be the seven-year tribulation, and then Jesus will return a second time, not on a donkey, but on a great white steed as a warrior He will come down from heaven with the armies of heaven and he will put an end to the conflict on the earth. He will put an end to the Antichrist. He will put an end for a thousand years to Satan and his demons. And he will establish the kingdom that he's promised. Now throughout all of his three and a half year ministry, Jesus avoided confrontation with the Jewish authorities as much as he could. Oftentimes uh, in the gospels, he would move into different areas because things were heating up and he didn't want to force a confrontation with the Jewish leaders. But now he was forcing their hand. He was being declared king. He was receiving accolades. In fact, he put it all into motion. He says, hey, we have to have this donkey and this is what's going to happen uh, uh, in the fulfillment of prophecy. He was forcing it so that the authorities must either accept him or reject him. There was no middle ground. In a sense, this is how God the Father was providing for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The Gospels tell us that the Jews didn't really want to crucify Jesus on Passover because they were afraid of the crowds. But God forced their hand, as it were, and it fulfilled prophecy. And when Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple, uh, so when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. We say that something is an anticlimax or anticlimactic when it is a disappointing end to an exciting or impressive series of events. On the surface, Jesus' quick survey of the temple followed by his withdrawal to Bethany is anticlimactic. In fact, I believe it to be the most anticlimactic moment in all recorded history. I can't think of anything that would qualify as a greater anticlimax. Hailed as king, riding the Zechariah colt, entering on the exact day Daniel had prophesied, Jesus gets off of the colt, goes into the temple and says, ah, 
Let's go get some sleep. We'll pick this up tomorrow. What? Where's our king? Where's our kingdom? Now we can look back and understand the timing and the plan because we know the events of Jesus last week. But for his disciples and the Passover travelers, it must have seemed pretty strange. Why go to all that trouble seemingly for nothing? You've undoubtedly noticed that God has his own seemingly unusual timing in the affairs of your life. I think he's late right now in a few things that I'm praying for. And probably you do too, if you're honest. You think, Lord, what are you waiting for? Well, he's not late. He's not early. He's God, and he is accomplishing more than we can know or ask for. Now, there is in this episode a lot of what I'm calling God's leading. Jesus was led by God, probably by a word of knowledge, to send two of his guys on the mission to acquire the colt. His disciples were led to the colt, where they determined to obey the Lord by loosing it. The owner of the colt and the townspeople in the immediate vicinity, they were led to cooperate. And you could even say the colt was being led, seeing it had never been ridden before, but it immediately submitted to Jesus. Depending on the words you Google, if you search for God's leading, you'll see a variety of articles. Let me just summarize a few of the ways God can and does lead you. Now we see in the Bible, God speaks to all men through creation. Romans chapter one, Psalm 19. If you're not a believer, there's enough evidence all around you that there is a creator and if you seek him, you will find him. The apostle Paul said it best on Mars Hill, preaching the gospel to these uh, intellectuals. He said, he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And so, you know, we worry sometimes, or people bring up as an argument sometimes, what about people who've never heard the gospel? Seems unfair. Well, that's not a problem. It wasn't a problem for Paul. Paul said, let me tell you about the people who haven't heard the gospel. God is responsible for putting them exactly where they are. In the exact situation there, he's predetermined where they would be for the specific reason that they would grope after him and seek after him and find him. Now, you and I look at that and say, well, how is that going to happen? And the answer to that question is, we don't know. But God said, don't worry, I've got it covered. You just go and preach the gospel as you're going. I'll take care of the rest. But if you're worried about somebody who's never heard the gospel, I've given them creation, and if they respond to it and grope and seek after me, they will find me. Now, God has communicated in various other ways in the Bible, including angels. He speaks through the prophets. He speaks through dreams and visions and miracles. He even once, when dealing with the prophet Balaam, spoke through a donkey that he enabled to speak as a man speaks. One of the greatest you know stories in the bible because the donkey starts talking to Balaam and he starts talking back as if it's normal that's how far this guy is gone the donkey he's starting to beat the donkey the say haven't i been a good donkey well you be, you know and it's like you know if a donkey spoke to me i mean mr ed aside you know this is an unusual situation and, but God did that. that that's, that's what he had on hand to speak uh, to Balaam, and he did. 
Now, we certainly want to be careful with things like dreams and waking visions, and we must admit that God still uses these well into the New Testament era, however. We mentioned an angel speaking to Cornelius and the vision given to Peter to go to Cornelius. The Apostle Paul received the vision of the man from Macedonia. And again, this is in the book of Acts. This is in the New Testament era, in the church era. So I have to conclude that God can and does still lead using these methods. In the opening of the book of Hebrews, we read this, God who had at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom he also made the worlds. And so that tells us that uh, the life and words of Jesus communicate to us everything we need to know about God And that would include now the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so we look at the Bible, we see how Jesus is presented, we read the words about Jesus, we read the words he spoke. Jesus said, if you see me, you see the Father. And so we're we're getting all that. But the Lord also said to his guys, I'm gonna go away, but it's okay because when I'm gone, I will send another comforter just like me who will be with each one of you always. And so we now have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to talk to us about and to teach us about Jesus Christ. And so if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. As you nurture your relationship with your heavenly Father, you learn how to be attentive to his voice. As you grow in faith and mature as a believer, you will learn to hear God speak to you. Now, of course, God also speaks to us through his written word, especially as we apply it and obey it. One of our most often quoted verses is Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It implies that God has a path for you to follow and that he will guide you day and night as you put one foot in front of the other on that path. God can use your circumstances to lead you. Sometimes the thing that you think you want to do or try to do you're blocked from doing it. The door is closed, we would say. Other times, doors will open. God can lead you by speaking to you through other spirit-filled believers or even through non-believers. The truth is, there isn't only one way or four ways or ten ways that God can and does lead you. As you walk with Jesus, he will reveal many things to you in many ways. The study, you look at these different studies online, and, and I've said things like this before too, so I throw myself in there, but sometimes people say, oh, the three ways God leads you, the five ways God leads the 10 ways God leads you, all that tells you is that there are many ways that God leads you. The real question isn't, can God lead you? The question is, are you open to being led by God? If we didn't have this episode in our Bible, if this never existed, And I were to say to you, Jesus told me to go into town and loose a colt without asking the owner's permission because he has need of it. I think most Christians would say, Jesus would never tell you to do something like that. You're so far out on a limb, you don't know what you're talking about because the Lord wouldn't tell you to do something that weird. Indeed, if you read some of the stuff on God's leading and you apply it, There's no room for anything extraordinary. They have biblical logic, and these commentators, uh, what they say cancels out the extraordinary. I'm not saying we do things recklessly and without confirmation, but I am saying that God still asks us to venture into the weird every now and again. 
give you one example that came to mind. There's a lot of Christian financial counseling. There's different guys and organizations that uh, over the years, some are more popular than others, others, and you can get, you go to seminars and all this, and, and lots of solid Christian financial counseling. If you come up to one of these guys and say, the Lord told me to sell everything I have, give up my retirement and, every, and give to the poor and follow him, well, that doesn't really meet their principles. Most of the time they say, well, let's look at Proverbs. Let's see what the Bible says about Proverbs and providing for yourself. And let's look at the ant and how he provides for himself. And if you just followed the advice of these financial counselors, you could never be the rich young ruler who Jesus said, give everything away. And I've seen plenty of situations where Christians are being prompted by God in a certain area, not just finances, but in other areas, and other well-meaning Christians say, oh, no, no, no. No, no, that's extreme. Don't quit your job. Don't go into the ministry. Don't give up your savings. Don't invest in that. Just wait. Just forget those ideas. There's no extraordinary. We're taught to live really ordinary, safe, comfortable lives where there's no loosing at all. Everything just stays tied up. And when the Lord comes and says, I have need of it, yeah, I don't think you do, Lord, because you don't really, don't really need anything. You own the cattle on a thousand hills. I'm going to keep my cattle for myself. And it's a very interesting situation. Don't do things recklessly and without confirmation, but if God has never asked you to do something extreme, you're either not listening for it or he will. And it's exciting when you know that it's the Lord, when he confirms it. You've heard it said, let go and let God. It's not a great biblical philosophy. In fact, it's not biblical at all. We should say, let loose and let God. We ought to hear the Lord saying to us, the Lord has need of it, and then let loose of whatever it is.